Hey, everybody, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, check it out. The Grammy winning Boston Early Music Festival presents the North American premiere of Agostino Stefani's Baroque masterpiece, Orlando, June 9th through the 16th in Boston. In a fantastical world of magic and mystery, a psychological drama comes to life in a fully staged production featuring expressive music, gorgeous costumes, breathtaking flying machines, and truly ravishing performances from an international cast. Stefani's Orlando is the centerpiece of a week-long festival with French Baroque chamber opera, concerts and recitals, and so much more. Secure your tickets today by visiting BEMF.org. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening... Welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about Opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chi-Town. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, tonight, we go inside the huddle with Opera Theater of St. Louis General Director Andrew Jorgensen, tearing him away from watching the St. Louis Blues in the Stanley Cup Final to discuss OTSL's 2019 Summer Festival season. And then in Chalk Talk... Three different operas are being presented in the U.S. this summer. They all tackle tough questions about race in America. We're going to tell you how these works are adding to that conversation. Plus, two-minute drill, our hot takes, everything that went down in the past week in opera land. And, of course, you can call us live on air. Get that voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your opinion on what we're talking about. 847-866-9687. You can tweet us at Opera Box, or you can also post on our Facebook page. You can say hello to Oliver Camacho as well. So I'm watching so much tennis right now. My eyes hurt so bad. But uh, <laughs> there's this guy named Stefanos Tsitsipas. Sounds like City Pass or Tsatsiki Sauce. He's Greek. He's 20 years old. He is a moving sculpture. He's so gorgeous. <laughs> I cannot deal. I really can't deal. Unfortunately, he did not advance to the... Um, quarterfinals, but he came very, very close to beating uh, Stan Varinka, uh, who was a one-time champion of the French Open. And something really terrible happened, and I'm so embarrassed to talk about this, but um, there was this mix-up at the press conference after Serena Williams lost her match, and one of my favorite players, Dominic Team, was giving his press conference. He had just won, and Serena Williams had just lost. And Serena Williams apparently was impatient and wanted to get on with the show and like have her press conference and get out of there. And it appears that there was a miscommunication or bad management by the French Open, and it made it sound like she was asking Dominic Team to like shut up already and move on. And it created this whole kerfuffle. And I know that Serena Williams did not like that. I know she's passionate when she loses, but I know that she doesn't mean any disrespect. So Dominic, just relax, okay? I got you. <laughs> I got that, you. That sounds like backstage at an opera house. Oh, you just that's so true. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. 
We're not going to talk about Stanley Cup or about the NBA we got, finals. We got lots of time. We got lots of time to talk about Stanley Cup. Andrew Jorgensen became the fourth general director of Opera Theater of St. Louis on July 2nd last year. He was previously the director of Artistic Planning and Operations at Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center, where highlights of his artistic collaboration with that company's artistic director, Francesca Zambello, included the East Coast premiere of Champion by Terrence Blanchard and Michael Christopher, which was originally commissioned and premiered by OTSL. He joins us live via phone from St. Louis. Andrew, thanks for skipping the Stanley Cup final and talking to us instead. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. Thanks for having me on. We know that you're such a big sports fan, and we're so sorry that you're going to miss the Stanley Cup finals. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you can't live very long in St. Louis and not start to care about the Blues and the Cardinals. True. Uh, my hope is that by the end of this evening, uh, we'll all be singing Gloria uh, if the Blues get out of this tie that they're in right now and find their way to a victory this evening. Uh, here's hoping. <laughs> Well, we have uh, like about 20 minutes to talk to you right now, and I, I want people to understand your career, but you are like the Pete Buttigieg of opera right now. You're like this young guy who's like had some important jobs, and now you hold one of the major general director positions uh, at an American opera company. And you know, before long, you're going to be the president of the United States. <laughs> My mother will be flattered to hear that. Uh, you may overstate the case, but thank you. So uh, can you tell us a little bit, about, for those who have not been, tell us a little bit about uh, Opera Theater St. Louis, what it's known for, its seasonal structure, and some of your mission? Absolutely. Opera Theater is a real jewel in the St. Louis cultural crown, and I think it's special in the overall landscape of opera in this country. Uh, since our founding in 1976, Opera Theater has really adhered to a core of key principles. We are a festival in the late spring and early summer. We do four productions in repertory, including classics, rarities, and always a commitment to new and commissioned works. We have a great commitment to searching for, nurturing, and promoting uh, the next generation of great artists in this country. Uh, so many great singers got their start at Opera Theater and in our Young Artists program. But it's not just singers, directors, designers, artisans on and off stage. We're really proud to promote the next generation of what will make opera great. And of course, we also have a commitment that all of our performances are sung in English. Mm. And it's so wonderful to experience a performance at Opera Theater in the intimacy of our 987-seat theater. Our audiences laugh harder, they cry harder, and they feel the operas more immediately in English. So that's a lot to unpack. Uh, we know by looking at uh, your website and reading all your uh, press, press kits that you're in the middle of the season as we speak. Um, Marriage of Figaro and... Um, both Marriage Figaro is up and Rigoletto just went up. If I might. That's percent. right. Figaro and Rigoletto are both okay. open. So those are your classics. Those are uh, our classics. And then this weekend you're doing Popea, Coronation Popea. That's right. And Sunday then we're going to talk. We'll open the Coronation of Popea. And then we'll talk about uh, later on uh, Fire Up in My Belly or Fire Up in My. What's Fire Up Fire in... Shut Up in My Bones. <laughs> Oliver, uh, I knew you were going to blow that. Uh, <laughs> that Terrence Blanchard and librettist right. Casey Lemons will bring us opens uh, two weeks, June 15th. So, as far as the current season goes, can you just give us a little insight, like what you're really excited about? Is there an artist that you're so thrilled to bring to OTSL? Or is there a production element or a director or a conductor? I know everybody is 
like a highlight, but there's got to be something that you're like, yes, we did this. Absolutely. And, and you're right. There is a highlight. Each opera has something which is compelling and exciting. And I think it's the energy of all four at one time, which makes the season so special. Uh, but in each opera, there are a few things I'm happy to highlight. Uh, Rigoletto opened on Saturday evening, and it was just thrilling to hear Roland Wood sing the title role it was equally thrilling to have our resident conductor and head of music, Roberto Kalb, at the podium leading the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, which is the orchestra we are privileged to partner with. Roberto had conducted different performances of different operas, but this was his first full production, and it was just inspiring and exciting to hear him make music with that orchestra. The Marriage of Figaro has a cast that is entirely composed of artists who have had connection to opera theater, so alums of our Young Artist programs. And it's really exciting both to hear the quality of their singing, but also to see all of them as they make their way in the career coming back to opera theater, to their home company, and working with us and on our stage. The, the production of Figaro is also worth mentioning. It is spectacularly beautiful. Director Mark Lemos partnered with Paul Steinberg and Constance Hoffman for sets and costumes. It's inspired by the art of the French 18th century painter Fragonard, uh, you may have seen his work. Bless you. I think there's some in Chicago. <laughs> I think there's some in New York. But it's beautiful and colorful and stylish and very classical, but without being boring or fusty. I'm very excited about it. Popea is something we've never taken up before at mm. Opera Theater. And Brenton Ryan and Emily Fons are just sensational as Nero and Popea. It's also exciting that the orchestra, which is comprised of Baroque instruments, is on stage and is on stage the entire evening. It's something That's how it's done, sir. <laughs> well, we haven't done it that okay. way at Opera Theater before, and we are really excited to give our Get with the program. That <laughs> we're, we're catching up. We're catching up to the program, and we are excited. Our audiences will have that sort of intimate, authentic-sounding experience. Uh, which is unlike anything we've taken on before. Tim Albury's production is very smart, very stylish, and very sexy. So I think people will really. It's got to be sexy. Well. You know that the, in the original production of that, there were topless women, probably even in the audience. Like people brought their courtesans <laughs> to go see this. I'm not even kidding you. I went to a lecture about how opera was performed in Venice, and it was raunchy, raunchy than we, raunchy than we could imagine. So. Well, I, I can't promise nudity in our <laughs> production, but I, but I can say that we are heading in the direction, and that I think it is. Uh, the, the Venetians would recognize the work that we are doing. So if I come, is it okay if I take off my shirt? No, uh, I, I, no I'm no, never nude. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a never nude. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. We're talking with the General Director of Opera Theater of St. Louis, Andrew Jorgensen. Andrew, I was at the 2018 Opera America Conference, which was hosted by Opera Theater, of course. The green and white awnings on the tents are so iconic to Opera Theater. Why is it special that they're there and what happens under those awnings? 
the tents at Opera Theater are what make the opera experience so great. It isn't just that we offer wonderful performances in an intimate theater. It's the complete performance experience. Our audiences come early to enjoy picnics in our beautiful festival gardens, and they're invited to stay late under the summer stars to have a drink and toast with members of the cast and, get and company. <laughs> it, it's a thrilling way to experience opera and it's a it's a complete evening it's food it's drink it's social it's great art and there's something very special about staying up late uh, under the tent under the stars having a drink and talking about art that you just saw that inspired you i i, I george is a follow-up on that but i just want to say you're absolutely right and I think that should, that cannot be stated more because I go to events all the time. And when I'm done, I have this feeling I need to talk to people about this. I need to, like, have a drink and I want mm-hmm. to, like, you know, debrief. And there are some spaces, maybe even a very famous one in Chicago, where you just can't do that. You have to, like, go somewhere else and, like, you know, wait at a bar or something like that to finally be able to unload what you've just taken in. And that's that's too long. You, you know, while you have that feeling, I think you really need to let it just to share it, you know. I, I well said. I'm going to steal that line. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Andrew, there were two articles recently talking about how opera theater is tackling research about their audience. One was uh, on americantheater.org, uh, and the other was in the Opera America magazine recently. You can get links to those on our website, operaboxscore.com. In those, you talk about the leaky bucket problem. Talk us through the leaky bucket. Yes, the leaky bucket. This is a problem that so many arts organizations are facing right now. It's the idea that we are losing our core audiences, our longtime subscribers who are aging or no longer coming, and that we are not replacing those core audience members fast enough to ensure the long-term viability of our art forms. Opera Theater has had the incredible good fortune in the last four years to be part of a cohort of 25 different legacy arts institutions, uh, ballet companies, orchestras, symphony orchestras, um, plays, uh, theater companies, opera companies, that have been brought together by the Wallace Foundation in New York. And the Wallace Foundation has invested enormous resources in helping us to try different things that will help us to build and retain new and younger audiences. Not only that, but they've also given us resources to help us measure how effective those efforts have been. Uh, So often in the arts, we aren't able to take any time to do research or to measure the success of our efforts. And with Wallace's partnership, we've been able to make some real strides in finding new audiences and in building opera theater's audience for the future. And that's what the the Wallace Foundation collaboration was so unusual, and that you weren't focusing on marketing, you were focusing on research. It's not sexy, but it feels like the numbers you got out of that research have really started to pay off as to why people aren't going and how people are retained. Something that surprised me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that one of the discoveries Opera Theater made was that actually millennial audiences are drawn to warhorse operas, perhaps more so than very contemporary uh, topical works. Is that true? Yes, it is true that not just millennial audiences, all audiences, uh, the warhorse, the legacy operas, the great classics, are the ones that attract 
the most numbers, the largest number of first-time attendees. That is something that the research has borne out again and again, actually. So is the, uh, obviously, uh, the way you make those more accessible, uh, famously, is uh, the English uh, translations of those works. And I've, I've, I've always known this about Opera Theatre of St. Louis. I've always, uh, I've always been intrigued by it, because obviously that used to be kind of the norm, um, that you would always perform operas in translation. And since the advent of supertitles, that's become less and less and more of a specialty thing. Um, uh, so I kind of have a sort of a two-part question. My first part is... How do you guys come up with it? Do you create the translations in-house? Do you take them from somewhere else? And uh, number two, how do you think English translations really help to specifically give uh, life to these older warhorse works? Our translations come from a variety of different places. Some are translations that we have used previously. Some are freshly commissioned. Uh, in the case of the coronation of Popea, Tim Albury, the director, actually wrote uh, mm. his own translation. And so it depends on the work. Uh, one of the things I hope to do more as we go forward is to commission more bespoke translations that will fit the particular productions that we do. As for how they really attract audiences, I, I think what we see in the research and what I certainly sense, people are afraid of opera. Opera is mm. something that intimidates people, and we see all the time people think it's, you know, it's that notion of Julia Roberts and Richard Gere taking the plane to go to the opera in Pretty Woman. People think opera isn't just for the educated and the rich, but for the super-educated and the super-rich. And their prostitutes. <laughs> and, and that. Uh, and so the idea that we are doing opera in English is something that people are happy about, that they're surprised about, and that it takes away this question, how will I, the common Joe, mm. understand what's going on? And so it welcomes them into opera in a way that perhaps might not have been possible otherwise. Of course, in the interest of honesty, I don't have the counterfactual to show you the data of what would happen if we had done our work in the native languages. Sure. But I can tell you that our Young Friends events, our new audience initiatives are consistently very successful and that one of the things we get in surveys after the fact is that a major attraction was opera in English. So Opera Theatre St. Louis has a renowned young artist program. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? You know, I'll say that a lot of our audience are singers and maybe even pre-professional singers that are just looking for any kind of information. Uh, would you mind talking about the program and maybe tell us about some of your notable alumni from the program? Absolutely. Uh, mentoring young artists and our young artist program is absolutely at the core of opera theater and our mission. It's one of the things that we are proudest of. It's an incredibly selective young artist program. This year, we had more than a thousand applicants for 31 places in our young artist mm. program. And I think if I tell you some of the alums of the program, people who got their start with us, uh, those statistics won't be shocking. Uh, opera theater has helped launch the career of people like Larry Brownlee, Jamie Barton, Christine Gerke, 
Shut Matt Polanzani, <laughs> Russell Thomas, Aaron Morley, Corinne oh. Winters, uh, Susan Graham's first professional contract was at Opera Theater. Christine really? Brewer. The, the list of singers who have come from Opera Theater, and of course I'm new, so I can't take any of that credit, <laughs> but we are just so proud of that legacy of singers who have come through our ranks and, and that you've heard them first uh, in roles at Opera Theater. Uh, this year, four of the five winners of the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions are associated with Opera Theater. Uh, Miles Mickinen, the tenor, is a former member of our Young Artists program. And three young artists are actually right now with us who were winners. Uh, William Guambosu, the bass, uh, Elena Villalon, the soprano, and one who I'm particularly eager to talk to you about, uh, who's, her name is Michaela Waltz, and she's the mezzo-soprano uh, who won this year. Wonderful singer. Michaela is actually a St. Louis native, mm. and not only is she an alum of our Young Artist programs, uh, she's back this year singing a more featured role as a, as a, uh, a more, the role of love in the Cornish of Popea, uh, but also Michaela was a member of our Bayer Fund High School Artist in Training program, and so she not only uh, had her training as a, uh, as a member of our artist program, but got her start in singing hmm. at Opera Theater. And so I think that just underscores how proud we are and how fortunate we have been to play a role in nurturing so many young artists across well, the career. Well, that's all fine and well, but what is Opera Theater St. Louis doing about prenatal training? Prenatal training. Uh, we, we start seeing students as early as the third and fourth grade. In first grade, we have an opera on the go program that brings uh, uh, shortened operas to schools for kids starting in the, in the first grade. Mm. Uh, but I can't help you before that, at least not, <laughs> not yet. Nice try, Oliver. I'm telling you right now, you cannot catch Andrew Jorgensen <laughs> off guard. This guy is such a pro. <laughs> you, you, will not, you will not outwit him. Um, hey, Andrew, you got a couple minutes to, to stick around after the break? Absolutely. That would be fantastic. Three different operas about race in America are all premiering this summer. We're going to talk you through those next, only on America's Talk Radio Show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bearer hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and a fantastic guest calling in live from St. Louis. It's Andrew Jorgensen, the general director of Opera Theater. 
of St. Louis. We're just going to check that Blues. Oh, tied 2-2 two to two at the end of the second period. Oy, 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 oy. How are you feeling that- over there, Andrew? Uh, I'm excited about opera. I'm excited about the blues. I'm excited about a lot of things right now. We're super excited about one of the three operas coming up about race in America this summer. So something really amazing happened. The New York Times did this article that highlighted a phenomenon that's happening this summer in the United States. There are three operas that are basically happening at the same time that all address race in a different way. One of them happens to be at Opera Theater St. Louis, uh, it is, I'm going to not get this wrong, fire sh- shut up in my belly? Bones. Bones. <laughs> so you could also say fasweetmba. Yeah. Uh, which is based on um, Charles Blow, the New York Times columnist's uh, memoir, and has music by, um, uh, who is the composer? Tell us. Terrence Blanchard. Terrence Blanchard. Blanchard. The same composer as Champion. Yes. That's right. And you're bringing back some of the creative team. Even one, of, I believe one of the singers is coming back um, from the, from Champion. Did I read that correctly? Uh, the young man who premiered the role of the Champion yeah. is back this summer in The Marriage of Figaro. Aubrey oh. Alarcon oh. is ah. singing Figaro. Nice. Uh, in this opera, Terrence Blanchard has partnered with the filmmaker Casey Lemons to write the libretto, and James Robinson, our artistic director, who also directed Champion, is again at the helm directing this production. Well, why don't I let you tell us a little bit more about that, since I'm not doing so well. I know that Julia <laughs> Bullock is in it, and I'm crazy about her, so if you want to mention her in any way, that's also great. <laughs> Julia Bullock is indeed with us. By the way, another St. Louis native who got her start in opera nice. as a member of Opera Theater's Artist in Training High School program. The prenatal can't program, yeah. the pl- Can't resist the plug to get that in. <laughs> no, this, is, this is an important project. Uh, I think it is a coincidence that Opera Theater and Glimmerglass and Long Beach are all doing these operas at the same moment, but I can't say that it's a surprising coincidence. Hmm. Uh, It wasn't planned to have this convergence of operas, but as I think about our national conversations right now and the conversations in our business, uh, so much of of our civic and social conversation is focused on racial injustice, on inclusion, on equity, and on really putting up mirrors that help us to examine the things that need to be better in our society. Uh, The role of artists is to reflect the world that they see around them, and so it can't be surprising that so many artists right now are wanting to tell these kinds of stories. Uh, Charles Blow is a major voice in our national conversation, and his his memoir is beautiful and poetic. Uh, It's actually not a political story necessarily. Charles Blow was the victim as a young boy, of sexual abuse by a family member. It's an incredibly tragic story. And he held that in uh, for most of his young life. And this memoir is that journey, his journey of finding his way through childhood and finding himself and ultimately finding uh, forgiveness and acceptance and love that has led him on the path that he now is on today. It's incredibly poignant and beautiful. And I think it's actually an uplifting story in a way because it tells us about the power of forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, the general director of Long Beach Opera, Jennifer Rivera, agrees with most of what you said about how these operas 
uh, are coming to be at the same time because of the political moment that we're in right now, uh, the things that are spoken about at conferences and the conversation about needing to increase diversity, not only on stage, but also in the creative teams and the leaderships, as well as the audience, obviously, uh, for opera houses. Um, I want to just ask a question, and we're going to set up this clip. We have the clip from the New York Times article of uh, Karen Blanchard singing. Uh, but, you know, Opera Theater St. Louis, I don't know the demographic of your audience. I haven't been. But how do you feel about, you know, presenting a work that might challenge uh, audience members who might historically be part of the systems that oppress, you know, the underserved? Mm. Absolutely. And... I completely understand that opera has always been or has, has often been thought of as something which is for an elite class, which it's philanthropically funded. But in St. Louis, I'm actually really proud to tell you uh, that where many other companies would have had supporters that would have run from a story like this one, from something which is topical or challenging, I'm really proud that time and again, our supporters and our audience members have rallied behind opera theater telling stories that are political or relevant or challenging or that speak to the world that we live in. Uh, the Death of Klinghoffer, Shalimar the Clown, An American Soldier, Champion, the list goes on of these works that our community has rallied behind and that our audiences have rallied behind. People come to see these new works. And I think that speaks to a deeper commitment that opera theater has and has had. You know, St. Louis has been the epicenter for so much discussion uh, and so many terrible events in our national life, uh, racial injustice, the protest in Ferguson. Uh, it's a years-long narrative in St. Louis, and I'm really proud that opera theater, in its own small way, is sees opera as a place to bring people together, to convene meaningful conversations, and to actually have, I think, healing conversations. Mm. And so I don't mean to challenge the premise of your question exactly, but I think in St. Louis what we've seen is that our supporters are excited to participate in these kinds of conversations and that we are all really grateful in some way to have these operas that really offer healing moments in a community that has, I believe, needed it quite strongly. Well, we're going to listen to a little bit of Karen Slack singing uh, Don't Be in Such a Rush to Grow from Fire Shut Up in My Bones with uh, pianist Peter Martin and bassist Bob uh, Debu. And we want to thank you for being on the show, and we're going to talk a bit more about the other two operas that are part of this article. But uh, good luck to whatever team you're cheering for, and uh, <laughs> good luck with the rest of the season over there at Opera Theater. Thank you so much. I look forward to welcoming you all under the tent uh, and seeing you at the opera very soon. Thanks, Andrew. Ciao.
What a voice, man. <laughs> Holy moly. Karen Slack singing the aria Don't Be in Such a Rush to Grow with pianist Peter Martin and bassist Bob Debu from Terrence Blanchard's opera Fire Shut Up in My Boons. We are talking to Andrew Jorgensen earlier. The guy is such a legend. So articulate, so passionate about what he does. He's had a phenomenal career going from, he was at what, Columbia Artists Management, yeah. right? Yeah. And then he was at the Met. I'm here hanging out with some chumps. <laughs> the festival <laughs> runs through June 29. More at opera-stl.org. We're going to continue the conversation on Opera Box Score about these three operas, which are all tackling the question of race, specifically African-American race in America here and now. We, we talked with Andrew about, is it a coincidence that these three operas are all appearing in the same summer? And... While operas are programmed years in advance, there still is this quality that because good art reflects the here and the now, Mm -hmm. that these questions have been simmering for a long, long time. Yeah, and music is always the slowest to respond, and particularly opera because of all the creative elements that go into making an opera. A lot of moving parts. (laughs) Yeah, but it is definitely a a pretty big coincidence. And according to Jennifer Rivera, uh, these artistic directors did not talk to each other and say, let's do it this summer, (laughs) all of us. They they couldn't have, no. Uh, Anthony Davis's new opera, which is Central Park 5, and it's funny, actually, I was just listening to um, one of Chicago's hip-hop stations today, and they were talking about Central Park 5, but the Netflix series. Hmm. I don't know oh. anything about the Netflix series at all. Neither do I. I haven't heard about it. For Central Park oh. 5. But, I mean, it's I'm about... I'm trying to get over that you're listening to The Hip and The Hop. Really? Yeah. Oh, man, that's my jam. <laughs> that is WGCI. <laughs> that explains a lot. Big shout out to WGCI. Explains a lot. I, I would love them to, to <laughs> shout us out. Uh, we should listen to a clip of that opera, actually. Oh, absolutely. Okay, but uh, we're hearing... Okay, so we're talking about Central Park 5. Central Park 5. If you go to this New York Times article, which is uh, going to be uh, linked to on our website, mm-hmm. uh, you'll hear a little bit like a kind of a wide sample of the style of music that uh, Andrew Davis, Anthony Davis, is, is writing in. But here is a moment we're going to listen to Nathan Grainer, who was a guest on our show uh, a couple years ago when he was doing The Invention of Morale. Is that what it was called, that opera? Uh, the, yeah, I think that was the, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Invention of Morale. Um, He's a tenor, and this is definitely a very lyrical, very 21st century Arioso moment from the Central Park Five. So Jenny Rivera says that Anthony's score is amazing and rich. It's diverse with multiple musical styles from really thorny, modern dissonant sections to very tuneful and hummable sections. Uh, It is always propelled by the rhythmic structure and changes meters often. He often incorporates jazz influences, as he always does, along with music from the 80s. 
just, just like me. Uh, it's just a great <laughs> amalgam of different styles and feels and includes a lot of fantastic five-part harmony singing, which that sounds really cool for the Central Park Five. They're like a barbershop quartet or a quintet, you know, <laughs> the Central Park Five, just like West Side Story. Um, I was getting real kind of like, uh, uh, just off of, off of that clip, I was getting real sort of Charles Ives vibes, actually. Yeah, I was getting like yeah. a Brit, I was getting a Britain Ooh. Ariozo moment. Yeah. Uh, but I actually posed the same question to Jen- Jennifer Rivera about the audience uh, and the donor structure uh, at op- Long Beach Opera, and would they be maybe offended by such a, you know, in-your-face subject matter? And her response was that uh, we did not consider this at all. We knew it was a story that needed to be told, and we did not consider any consequences of people not wanting to fund it, uh, and or committed to the idea that should that happen, we would find other funding. It does mm-hmm. not prove problematic for us at all. Our company, thankfully, does not have to operate with that model because we focus on unusual repertoire. So donors who fall in that very traditional category already don't necessarily fund us if that's all they like. That is really interesting, particularly with this opera, um, uh, I think is especially kind of on the nose if we're talking about topicality um, because the Central Park Five uh, were famously... um, brought out some quotes by a certain future president of the United States, who shall remain nameless. Um, <laughs> Who's a character in this opera. Yeah, and I, I think just looking at that, that if, if you're looking at it on paper, it feels like really risky to do. And I'm sure in, in some ways it, it absolutely is. But it's also the exactly the kind of relevant story that I, I've always want, I always want contemporary opera to pursue and I'm often disappointed by <laughs> if I'm being totally honest but I, I really love that this is being brought out as a relevant thing today with with the people in it who are in it um, and this is a definitely one for me to see and Jenny likes to add that opera has the unique ability to use music to create empathy for characters right. who you might not normally relate to or understand um, so I, I think she's absolutely right in that. And we have one more <laughs> opera to talk about before we close the segment. It's right. It's an opera called Blue, composed by Janine Tesori, who is a, uh, also known for her work on Broadway. And interestingly enough, did a piece at Washington National Opera under and with Andrew Jorgensen called The Lion, the Unicorn, and Me. This piece, Blue, has been uh, a collaboration with the director, Taswell Thompson. Uh, It's inspired by a number of contemporary events influenced by several literary works focusing on a black family in Harlem. The father is a police officer. The mother is loving and fearful for her child. And this child, their son, is this politically active teenager. The son's death brings to reality the mother's worst fear and ignites anger and devastation in the father. We don't have any specifics from Glitter and Glass, any quotes from them to put into the show. Uh, yet, yet, <laughs> yet, working on working, working on that. But uh, my guess is uh, that it, it really rounds out this trio, right? That again, this is an opera now that, although it's been in incubation for some time, that like these other two is really capturing this moment that we're that we're living in. And then it makes so much sense that there is this this trio. Well, it's about police. Well, I, I'm guessing it's about police violence when it when it comes down to it. I don't know. I haven't read the libretto, but I don't know if if anybody else has done any more research. I would love to hear from Glimmer Glass if that's not correct. Uh, but you know, that's tweeted us Glimmer Glass. Yeah, that's the topic here. <laughs> I mean, that's what what hasn't been said, but is obviously a big issue. You know, take a knee at the football game and. Don't sing the national anthem. All these things are all happening uh, about this. And um, yeah, we have an opera now that addresses this. 
Are you in the opera business and you have a family? Mezzo-soprano <laughs> Daniela Mack has some tips for you. Oh, we're not going to hear a clip of Brianna Hunter singing from Blue? Sure. Did you say We can do that. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I stuff, Oliver and I were both just like, like, I was like what are you I doing, George? All over your sack. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's that's fine. It's fine, man. No, we should we should Cut listen to the, the clip. But let's um let's let's set up this clip here. This is uh, a clip from Blue, sung by Brianna Hunter, accompanied by Kevin Miller. Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for everything you need to know about the past week in opera land. How do you go from the mundane world of everyday life to the dazzling world of a Met opera diva? That's the question the New York Times Magazine asked soprano Ying Fang, who gave the mag an insider tour of costuming, rehearsing, performing on one of the most important opera stages in the world. The Times has also released a harrowing article about how AIDS may have robbed us of great 20th century works. John Corleano's first symphony was performed as part of the Music of Conscience series at the New York Philharmonic. It's a tribute to musicians lost to the disease. For most people, the word opera 
Conjures up images of huge, lush houses, velvet curtains, golden interiors, but many people agree that the future of opera is on a much smaller scale. Timothy Nelson, artistic director of the small in-series company, told the Washington Post, As a young director, you're told the career you want is La Scala. I got to Europe, did larger productions, and felt totally empty at the end of them. The compromises you have to make, but at a small company, says Nelson, he doesn't have to compromise his vision. Daniela Max got some tips for striking that perfect balance between career and family. We're going to look at those in a minute. As baritone Lucia Lucas made for her triumphant premiere in the title role of Mozart's Don Giovanni, she was the first known trans woman to sing a principal role for a mainstream opera company. Kimberly Reed, Mark Campbell, Laura Kaminsky's As One is now returning to New York as part of NICO's third annual Pride series. On the disabled list, Sonia Yancheva missed her first night at Puccini's Tosca in Paris. Exit stage right, voice coach and Pittsburgh opera artist Stephen Totter has died at 56. Eva Kleinitz, director of the Opera Nationale du Rhin, has died at 47. And on this day, June 2nd, birthday of two English sopranos, Lynn Dawson and Valerie Masterson, we celebrate the anniversary of the birth of American tenor Jan Peace, Pierce. In 1947, Poulenc's Les Mamelles de Theresias premiered at the Opera Comique, and Stravinsky's opera Marva premiered at the Paris Opera in 1922. That's your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. It's Opera. Box score on WNUR FM and HD Northwestern Evanston Chicago 847-866-9687. Yeah, we got our phone studio. working. You can call now. Yep, uh, <laughs> we fixed it. Now that we got rid of Andrew, <laughs> you um, can give us a call. Let us know what you're thinking on Twitter at Opera Box Score. Re- retraction. I'm so sorry. This is totally my fault, uh, and it just goes to show how important punctuation is. Uh, Jan Pierce was not born in 1947. He was born way before that. But Poulenc's Breast of Teresias uh, premiered yes. in 1947. My bad. Oh, uh, we can we can share it on yeah. that or one. We can you just as long as I'm not being blamed, I'm fine. <laughs> I, yeah, Weston. Les Mamelles de Teresias. It's one of the first operas I directed. I really uh, yes, I love that show. I have never heard it. Not 50, even once. It's like 50 minutes long. It's totally kooky. The music is brilliant. It's it's oh, based lo- on the on Poulenc. the surreal play. Poulenc is just such a great composer. It's a fabulous show. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's done in schools of music quite often because it's very mm. singable. And it's short. Let's be and real. it's short. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. True. Um, so yeah, it ain't Tannhäuser. Transgender tell you visibility had a great week this week. Now, besides as one continuing to get amazing publicity, there's actually an article uh, that goes into uh, a little more detail than we went went into uh, in Playbill about how uh, a filmmaker learned to capture. There's the story about Laura Kaminsky, right? Or or is it about the librettist? I forget. It's about the librettist. Uh, not Mark Campbell, the colobretist. Kimberly Reed. Yes. Kimberly Reed, yeah. <laughs> so I'm sorry, we're not giving it due diligence, but I did want to talk about the NPR story. So right. I was like, it was either Saturday morning or Sunday morning uh, that I was listening to NPR, like I do, and uh, Lucia Lucas was on the radio being interviewed by Scott Simon, so it had to been Saturday. And that's incredible Yeah. that um, you know we've come to a point now where an artist like Lucia Lucas can just be on the radio talking about her career. And yes, that's part of the story is that she's transgender, but we also got to hear her sing and it's incredible. 
and her career is flourishing and way to go. And to pretty rave reviews too, from what, yeah. I've, what I've been told. It, it, yeah. I just think it's it. It was all over my news feed just for the past you know week and a half, and you know. It, Toy, toy, toy to her. Yeah. <laughs> Weston, where do you want to go from Well, next? I thought the kind of the interesting story of these was the one about the in-series. Uh, uh, less about the specific company, although I'm sure they do um, a really good work, but the, the whole general, you know, small opera, big opera paradigm in general. Because um, uh, I know when we were talking to Andrew earlier, he was like, oh, the... the Surprisingly, the uh, millennials um, do come for like the big war horses. So you kind of wonder what kind of things you know smaller companies are up against when they're doing you know you know a, a tiny company can't do Aida. They don't have they don't have the forces for that. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think the point about the in series is that what this director, Tim Nelson, is doing at the in series is he's actually taking these large works and he's slicing and dicing and he's completely reframing right. them. So is it going to be your Aida with animals on stage? No, it's not. <laughs> you're, you're right there. It's just going to be like a cat. Yeah. You know, even Game of Thrones had to cut their elephants for budgetary There you reasons, go. So. But, but he is one approach to these standard rep shows is to, is to really reinvent them. I think your point is, is heading towards like how will small micro-opera companies that are doing, say, 20th and 21st century right. work, what's the impact that they're going to have? It's, it's really hard to say, because uh, I, I know I've... This is not just a problem, I think, with opera companies. This is something that I've encountered as just sort of a, a, a straight actor, and well, a, an actor in straight plays um, has, has done. You know, well, I, I do really small productions, you know, all around, and I've been part of shows where every single person who shows up is a friend of one of the cast's, you know, cast members. Uh, and that's not a necessarily a very sort of viable um, business model. Uh, and in, in those respects, the big opera companies do have a leg up. One of the things about in-series that the article mentions is that um, it pointed out that unlike a lot of other small opera companies, this one actually survived the departure of the, uh, of the founder um, uh, and now is under new leadership. Um, and... I think that's really exciting. I think that's great. I just, I just wonder what can be done to um, really present these new, exciting works. Because I think a lot of the most exciting stuff and stuff in new contemporary opera is coming out of these storefront companies. And I, I, I wonder how we can get people to take a risk on a little storefront uh, compared to, say, the lyric. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's 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 boring, but it, it comes through through marketing, right? Like, the yeah. work's got to be good. You've got to find a way to, to get the work out and the name of, of the work out. Here's where I think I disagree with, with Timothy Nelson, is that in this quote, he says, as a young director, you're told the career you want is La Scala. And hmm. I got to Europe, and I started doing some large productions, and I felt totally empty at the end of them, the compromises you have to make. That's his quote. The fact of the matter is, is that there's always compromises. Right. Regardless of the scale you're working on, there's compromises at La Scala, and there are compromises at the scrappiest little <laughs> storefront <laughs> opera companies in Chicago. It's, it's literally just like the factor of 10 that you're dealing with in the budget. The question is, is, is always, how are you going to make art despite those compromises? What are right. going to be those guiding principles? Well, I think there's certainly something to be said for the idea that you can take more specifically artistic risks at a small company 
uh, compared to um, a large company, which maybe have more pressure to be a little more. I, I disagree with you. I'm su- I'm surprised to hear him say that 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 he went to Europe and he's he singles out La Scala specifically, although he's also worked <laughs> uh, I on believe in the Netherlands and in England, and and he can correct me if I'm wrong. But it seems to me that actually the companies in those European countries would be pretty open to reinvention. Hmm. That they would be pretty open to high concept. I'm not sure, not to dunk on La Scala specifically, well, but maybe I, maybe his vision was to do things very cheap and like, no, we need to spend more money. <laughs> Here's the money, use it, please. I do recall. And he's such a stand-up guy. He's like, no, it's cool. You know what? It's fine. <laughs> we just can, give we me can like just, 100 we, we can just cut yeah. the budget. It's fine. We can go to the thrift store. Yeah. Uh, I I think we did an interview. I can't remember with whom. Uh, it was probably about a year ago. Look back. Someone find it in our in our uh, archives and uh, let me know. Um, but we did do uh, an interview with. Someone um, who was comparing doing stuff in Europe to America, and he he did actually find that there was often, quote unquote, too much money. He didn't feel like there were any limitations well, forcing. Paul Curran, I, think. I believe it was. Yeah. That's correct. Um, he 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 liked having those budgetary restraints because it forced him to be creative. Uh, and I wonder if that's the sort of thing that he's thinking about. Um, but you know, I definitely think there's pros and cons. I am very much of the opinion: uh, if you're an opera company of any size, you should have a non-main non-main stage opera that does uh, small chamber works, experimental things. I think that it should just be a requirement. So that's I, my recommendation. I'm all for in series, but I'm just wondering if the artists are getting paid at the same scale. That's yeah, that's another question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe they have major funding. I don't know. You know, one can hope. Daniela Mack has this. Uh, interview article on operawire.com which is about her life so she is married to a tenor alex schrader they have a child i I think it's the only child that they have it's a little unclear from from the article no it's just it just is their daughter so just one child and you know uh, so i'm a director i'm a husband i'm a dad and i just contain multitudes loved this (laughs) article it it's it's so true i i could talk for hours about this i'll do a one-man show one day on on opera box score it's what you're listening to by the way yeah. 89.3 fm george cedarquist with oliver camacho and weston williams i could do a whole show just on what it's like to be a parent in the mm. arts and look i'm a straight white guy okay <laughs> i have it relatively easy if you are a woman if you are a mom, I cannot imagine how tough this road is. Yeah. She talks about how to be honest with yourself about your priorities. She talks about f- define success for yourself. And that is so true. Defining success for yourself, I think, at least as a director, and to say you can have it both ways. You can be a great husband. You can be a great dad. And yes, you can make great art. All those things are possible. She points out that there's a lot of pressure kind of in the artistic community. And I think this is true, uh, not just of opera singers, but of, uh, of anyone in the arts that you have to. I think the, the way she puts it is um, uh, her quote here is the job of an opera singer has a stigma of being all consuming. And people have a preconception that to be a successful artist, you must be married to your art and that just doesn't yeah. that's not even necessarily a literal marriage but it also includes like if you want to have pets or a dog or just even a social life it's so it's so she's so on the nose about that it's so true i mean here's the thing people ask me quite frequently how do you think you can be an artist and have a family and mm. the answer is very simple the answer is 
how could I be an artist and not have a family? Your, mm. your family is always present, right? They're always in your work. You're always thinking about them. In a way, you're almost doing your work for them, right? Like, my wife is my biggest critic and my biggest fan. I talk to my kids constantly about the work that I do. I share my ideas with them. I share the music of the opera that I'm working with. I involve them in the process. Why? Because they're fascinated by it. Because they're interested in it and because it helps me work through the problems that I'm facing staging the thing. It helps me work through the personal problems that I'm having on the piece. I feel like this whole segment is turning into a practice for uh, the Father's Day episode coming up in two weeks. Oh, man. <laughs> so this past, speaking Do I get of that Father's Day, uh, which is on a Sunday, um, the New York Times uh, magazine, the New York issue, um, profiled 12 different performers and what it takes to prepare and, to, you know, what it's like to be on stage, what it's like to get into your costume. Uh, they profile a ballerina, a stand-up comic. A sword orchestra. swallower. Yeah. Uh, and included in, this, in these profiles is Ying Fang, uh, who sang Servilia in last month's Clemente de Tito at the Met. It's a great little profile. There's video. There's gorgeous photography. Mm -hmm. um, we'll link to it. On our website, but if you get the New York Times uh, digital, go check out this profile. It's really the cool. New York Times has really driven our episode this week. They they've been on top of the arts content <laughs> as far as opera. We get a lot concerned. of content from uh, Opera Wire too. I'm not yeah, gonna lie. It's, it's so, that's yeah. true. But I'm also a content creator. I'm the one that arranged that interview with Andrew. So oh, oh, okay. We well, get a lot of content thank you all of her. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the um, the AIDS. Uh, we don't have so much time for that, but um, that is a whole other topic about a generation. Of, of artists that we lost um, to AIDS. And I, I talked about this in another context. I think we might have talked about it in the show before how um, my generation of gay men in their, let's say, Gen, gen Xers, you know, mm. we lost our mentors. You know, like uh, it was the long history of the older generation you know, holding the hand of the younger generation and taking them to restaurants and showed them how to, you know, use the right fork or how to, you know, go to the opera, which bathrooms are the best bathrooms in the opera if you want to hook up, you know, that type of stuff. Um, we don't have that. I didn't have that. And I had to find those things myself. And I, I mean, my experience with opera is I'm happy what I did what I did and I found it the way I did and it helped, it helped me find early music, et cetera. But I didn't have anybody who took me and told me what it's about and listened to Maria Callas, that type of thing. And that's why I feel like it's my job to take those young gays and make them listen to Maria Callas. And this article is not exactly that, but it does talk about, you know, this generation of composers and performers that we probably lost uh, mm. due to the AIDS crisis. So you could check that out also in the New York Times. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, let us wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Ah, it's been great to be back in the studio again with y'all. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Anybody got a good call or a bad call? I got a good call for you. The uh, CSO, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, is doing a performance of Verdi's Aida. Uh, that's going to be conducted by Ricardo Muti, of course. Uh, we've got... Uh, uh, Krasimira Stoyanova. Stoyanova, yeah. Anita Rashiavelli. Rachmanisvili. Nailed it. Ildar Abradzikov, who I can pronounce. Uh, my good friend Eric Owens is going to be there. Uh, uh, lots of big sort of names for this one. And uh, uh, kind of a good... Uh, I, I, 
it feels like, you know, once we hit the summer, it's like, oh, opera's over. You know, we're all done. But this is going to be Friday, June 21st is when is the first performance. It's going to be a performance on the 23rd and 25th. That's your uh, that's your summer opera so right there, is, guys. This is a series. That'll hold you over. Ricardo Mucci has been doing with uh, opera and concert at CSO. Yeah. And they've been all fantastic, and he gets great casts. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sort of like the finale of the CSO indoor season. They move out to Ravinia. My Good Call also happens at Symphony Center here in Chicago. Friend of the show, Michael Christie, will be back in Chicago uh, conducting Chicago's Civic Orchestra in the Ryan Opera Center uh, finale, season finale. It's actually an introduction to the three new artists that are joining the roster, uh, soprano Matilda Edge, uh, mezzo-soprano Kathleen Felty and bass Anthony Reed with the rest of the uh, Ryan Opera Center in performance and scenes from, uh, let's say they're doing Don Giovanni, Barbara Seville, um, Donatetti's uh, Daughter of the Regiment, and one more thing, uh, Ar- Dominic Argento piece, I forget what it's called. So go do check. You, so tickets what, are free. Do you know when that Oh, free. That's, I'm that's, in. that's Wednesday at 8 o'clock in Chicago at Symphony Center. Tickets are free. Cool. You have to go to the symphonycso.org to get your free ticket. It's like a $5 <laughs> ticket fee, so it's nothing. Oliver, it was funny that you and I were both at the Fourth Coast Vocal Ensemble concert last Sunday. Shout out to them. Yeah. Uh, Fourth Coast Ensemble is a very small group here in Chicago of um, singing artists there they specialize in art song and they also specialize in chamber vocal chamber music which nobody does hmm. they're the only group in town doing that you know <laughs> I, I took the kids i thought and, they did pretty yeah. well and dave govertson uh is part of that and he should be our guest at some point oh absolutely yeah, my daughter got a little squirrely towards the end she yeah. got she'd eaten all her veggie straws at that point and, yeah. and i mean like, 80 minutes of art song will make anybody squirrely <laughs> <so>. <laughs> that's it for this week's show and America's Talk Radio Show about opera. General managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Somil Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song, Vodka Inferno, is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with your favorite hockey fan. We're back on Monday, June 10, 9 p.m. Central. More opera, more hot takes, more barbecue sauce. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.